Welcome to the Pretty Deep Media Podcast. I'm Preeti. And I'm Deepa. And we are two sisters who ask better questions to get better answers. Previously, we discussed how fertility treatments led to a lump, which ended up being breast cancer, and four surgeons later, we ended with a lumpectomy. Now, most people would typically settle for the first surgeon, maybe seek one more opinion, and then decide on a surgery. How come you talk to four? Well, a couple of reasons. You were one of the reasons, because you suggested that we should consult as many people as we can, as efficiently as we can. And I think ultimately, I didn't really feel sold on the first or the second or even the third. So it made sense to keep looking. Why weren't you sold? Well, we talked about it last time. I mean, the solutions either seemed really complicated or uh, the surgeons themselves I didn't uh, get along with. So it was as much about meshing with the personality as it was about finding the best solution. Yeah, and it's not about um, you know whether you like the person or not. It's ultimately, do you trust them to do right by you? So you felt the fourth surgeon, the manipulator, was the best option at the time. Well, she ended up telling us there was some malignant cells left behind, though she said it was the precancerous cells. Well, so they're not even malignant at that point, right? They haven't turned malignant, but they're abnormal. Yes. Right. And so she gave you the option of doing a mastectomy and just getting rid of it once and for all, or just leaving it in. And her mastectomy solution would have been a long time of recovery, more surgeries, more antibiotics, more drugs, eventually fake nipples. (laughs) Not something you wanted to jump right into. No, and also it was DCIS, what I was told. So ultimately it was stage zero. Would that have self-resolved was my question now that I wasn't pumping my body with Clomid. I don't know. I mean, these are all the unanswered questions I had, though surgeon number four, the manipulator, uh, disregarded the role of Clomid in my situation. She told me that this uh, malignancy would have been in my body for six to eight years prior to me discovering it, which just didn't seem to make sense. So, so far, radiologist number one said two years she thought this was in your body. Surgeon number four said she thought six to eight years. Right. Okay, so now we need some help to figure out what we're going to do. Do we do a second surgery or not? And so we start talking to oncologists who really should be the ones helping guide these decisions from the beginning. Up until now, we hadn't even met with an oncologist. The first people we were always referred to were the breast surgeons. So breast surgeons, it seems like in this situation, are really the gatekeepers um, before you get into the next phase. So it would seem that you have to go through them to then get to the doctors who then you work with long term. The surgeon, maybe you see two, maybe three times in the whole process at the beginning, and then you don't interact with them after that. So the oncologist, though, you keep in touch with for many years to come. That's the assumption, yes. But the surgeon you only see a few times in the beginning. Right, until their job is done. But despite that, the surgeon is the one you first see and is, in a way, the decision maker and even a gatekeeper. They position themselves as the authority figures right from the get-go. Yes, that's the sense that I got uh, in the four consultations we had. Okay, so we meet with the first oncologist, who we'll call the statistician. He is super nice, but he frames everything in terms of statistics and percentages. 
For example, we asked him, how often does chemo work? And he said about 40% of the time. We said, how often does radiation work? He said it reduces the recurrence risk to about 2.5%. And then we asked him how hormone therapy works. And he said, well, that reduces the risk by a further 1.5%. So anything we asked him, he spoke back in terms of percentages. Now, interestingly, he told us that Clomid definitely impacted the growth of the mass. He said it was a guaranteed role and he thought it was there for about six months. So his guess at how old the mass was was significantly shorter in its lifespan. Yeah, I mean, basically the amount of time that I was on Clomid was how old the mass was in his guess. Now, he also suggested that we run an oncotype score, which I didn't know at that time what it was. No surgeon had mentioned this to me, but he defined the oncotype score as a score ranging from zero to 100 that predicts the risk of recurrence. Towards 100, you have very high risk of recurrence. Towards zero, you have very low risk of recurrence. So he said, you don't need to do anything. We can just use the biopsy sample that was already taken and I'll run it for you. And I said, okay, since I don't have to do anything, let's just see what my risk of recurrence is. And I asked him, at what point would you say that this is likely to recur? He said, well, we look at it from the perspective from oncology and chemotherapy terms. So if it's below 18, 25, 30, 31, it depends on which doctor you talk with, then we would favor doing chemo if it was higher than those numbers. If it was lower than those numbers, we would say chemo may have little to no benefit. So basically he's telling you, depending on where your oncotype score falls, we would recommend that you either do chemotherapy or you don't. Correct. So he ran your oncotype score and then he called you back. He called me back after the lumpectomy, actually. So the surgeon that did the lumpectomy, their institution never ran an oncotype score, interestingly, but he did. And so he called me and he said, I just wanted to tell you, I haven't seen a score this low. Your score was a two. And so what does that mean? I guess in layman's terms, what it would suggest is that there's very low risk of recurrence um, for this, not just locally, but the argument would also suggest distantly in the body. Now, was he expecting that kind of low score considering the mass was over four centimeters and you were node positive? No, I actually don't think he was expecting a score that low at all, which told me a lot later down the line about how the Oncotype score is understood by doctors. Yeah, I actually called the company that runs the Oncotype scores, and I spoke with someone for a long time about how this testing is done. And what the representative told me is that clinical factors are very different from biological factors. So you could have a malignant mass that's only two millimeters big, and yet have an oncotype score of 86. And you can have a five centimeter mass, but have an oncotype score that's lower than five, or in your case, even two. So the biological factors involved in malignancy have much to do with how the genes are working. And the genes are typically grouped in uh, subcategories. And they are hormone genes, they are gene uh, growth promoting genes, uh, and so on and so on. And so they look at how a combination of the genes which affects the rate at which a mass grows or what it's stimulated by, and that ultimately determines an algorithm, which then they apply the algorithm to a given assigned score. And so typically 
malignant masses that are very hormonally sensitive tend to have lower oncotype scores, whereas malignant masses that are not as hormonally sensitive tend to have much higher oncotype scores. So when oncologist number one, the statistician, told you that your score was a two, what was his recommendation in terms of next steps? Well, his recommendation was that chemo would probably not be uh, a benefit at this point. And, you know, at that point, I told him, well, I just had the surgery. I had the lumpectomy. And he said, oh, okay. And, um, you know, I said that we would stay in touch because obviously I wanted to see what his thoughts would be once we had the PATH report come back. So the PATH report came back from the institute that performed the surgery. And it was a very verbose 14-page document that needed to be only really two. But ultimately, it told us some things that we found out later, there were discrepancies. Right. So according to the medical institution's pathologist, the mass itself was 4.5 or 4.6 centimeters. So not at all close to the 3.5 centimeters that their own surgeon measured. And so that was problem number one, because the margins around the mass were probably not big enough. And so... What does it mean to have a, a safe margin around the mass? Safe margin means, at least from my understanding, that when you take out a, a tumor of some kind, you have to have a centimeter uh, radius of clearance so that any cells that are kind of loose, you assume that you would have scooped them up in that process. Now, it's true that she took out less than what she was supposed to. And as we see, that would have led to something potentially being left behind, which their own path report suggested was the case, with the DCIS. Right. Now, it is a little different in the breast versus, for example, another part in the body like the leg. The way that the breast is shaped, it's multidimensional the way the ducts run, it's not a, a clear, easy way to remove margin from the breast. And that's why everybody's very particular that there's a, a very good margin around the malignant mass. So what was clear from the pathology report is that the surgeon didn't take out enough. No, and I suspect that that may have happened because uh, she may have been concerned about cosmetic appearance and that there was a lack of confidence even from the get-go about a lumpectomy versus a mastectomy. So the margin may have been compromised on her end because she was already planning ahead for cosmetic symmetry. Right, so she didn't take out enough and then the report said that it was estrogen progesterone positive. Right, but the metrics were interesting. So I, the reason I'm mentioning this is because a later report will tell us something different. But estrogen was seen as being 90%. Progesterone, according to this institution, was at 55%. Clearly, you're hormonally sensitive. And the pathology report also said that seven nodes were malignant out of the 21 that were taken out. Yeah, so why they took out 21 was not because they thought 21 were compromised. It's just standard protocol. That phrase keeps coming back where if you know that, you know, I was told later that if four are compromised, then they automatically take out levels one and two in the axilla, irrespective of what the situation would be after node four. Okay, so the axilla is the area that's right by the armpit. And so, the breast, yeah. And the breast. So it's a group of lymph nodes that pretty much run from the breast through the armpit. And taking out levels one and two, there's no standard for how many nodes that is because it can vary from one person to the next. Correct. So in your case, it was 21 nodes. 
In my case, it was 21 nodes. Um, the path report also told us that um, there were no nodes that were compromised even microscopically after node seven. There was no extra nodal extension, meaning the malignant cells had not burst through the lymph nodes walls. Um, so they tested this in two different areas and they didn't find any malignant cells outside of the nodes themselves. So we knew seven nodes were compromised, nothing beyond seven microscopically, and then nothing beyond the walls of the nodes. Okay, so once we got all this information, we called the first oncologist, the statistician, back and told him the details in the report that he asked us for. And then what was his recommendation? I remember his face falling a little bit when he found out that seven nodes were compromised. I don't think he was expecting seven. Um, he knew that at least one or two would have been. But he said, you know, based on the studies that we have, I don't have the data to suggest that chemo would or wouldn't be a benefit past three nodes. We know up to three nodes with your oncotype score that chemo would be of little benefit. The studies have not been done beyond that. So I don't have that data. So he said, if you had three nodes positive or fewer than three nodes positive, you could safely skip chemo. But if it was over three, we just didn't have the data. But theoretically, he said it should work the same way. Theoretically, he did say that, yes, it should work the same way. And he said in a few years, he may have the literature to back up his statements. Correct. Okay, so did he say you have to do chemo? Or did he give you the option to do hormone therapy? He said, in his opinion, tamoxifen would be highly effective as a hormone therapy, that what it does is that it sits on the estrogen receptors of, of breast cells, and it blocks estrogen from feeding those cells. So he recommends that you take a drug, which basically would stop the estrogen from fueling any of these cells by sitting on the estrogen receptor of these cells. Correct. Okay. So did you take it right away? Not right away. Okay, so he says that's his best recommendation, and that if you just want to do tamoxifen, he would be okay with that. Yes. Okay, so that's oncologist number one's recommendation. Then we meet with oncologist number two, who we shall call the control freak. She's with the institute that I had the lumpectomy done at. Um, I actually never met her in person. Um, you and I have both spoken with her on the phone. You spoke with her in the wake of the surgery, and then I had a conversation with her a few days after that. Um, but she was very unwilling to talk about my situation with you unless I was there. Um, she was very unwilling to you know, really talk about anything until the PATH report came back, didn't really want to get into hypotheticals, you know, questions, you know, etc. And then when I mentioned to her that my oncotype score had been run um, at a local place or by a local doctor, she really reacted um, irrationally to me. She said, well, you know, we didn't do that. And, you know, that's not something that I have the information on. And I've seen oncotype scores that are zero, as if my two was not something that I should be encouraged by. So she overreacted. And I think I got the sense that she was not happy that I, that she could sense that I was consulting other doctors. And so I told you, and I told our parents that I felt very uncomfortable working with her, even though she said a lot of the things that I think you would be encouraged by in my situation, you know, can you do a pregnancy at some point? Yes, you know, can you do, is it achievable? Yes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. She was supportive of all of that, but there was still something a little bit off about her. 
Um, so in the meantime, I did get a bone scan and a CT scan done uh, after my conversation with her. That didn't show anything uh, as of June 3rd of 2020. And so then, you know, everything seemed okay, but her recommendation was to do, again, three months of chemo, followed by a month in between, then the mastectomy, month of recovery, then radiation. And she said this could all be done by Thanksgiving. Right, and her solution in terms of the hormone aspect was to do ovarian suppression and then an aromatase inhibitor. So what happens when you're on an ovarian suppressant? Yeah, basically you shut your ovaries down um, and so you prevent ovulation from taking place. The feedback loop between your pituitary gland and your reproductive organs is basically shut down. So it's like you're in menopause basically, even if it's temporary. And then the aromatase inhibitor is like a letrozole or some uh, you know, pill like that that you take on a daily basis that prevents the conversion of uh, testosterone to estradiol. So that's what it means to have an aromatase. It's the enzyme that does that. So by inhibiting it, you're really suppressing estrogen throughout the body. So estrogen in the body is made in at least two ways, one in the ovaries and the other way in tissue from the conversion of testosterone to estradiol. So by shutting both mechanisms down, the assumption is that estrogen plummets so much that any malignant cell that's left behind simply can't grow anymore. That's the assumption, because you're assuming that its main source of fuel is estrogen. Okay. And so she had a better solution. It seemed to be a little bit more thorough than just being on tamoxifen alone. And we had heard that there are risks with tamoxifen of developing uterine cancer. And this solution, that is the ovarian suppression and the aromatase inhibitor, didn't carry any such risk. So it seemed like a better solution, yet she was a very, very controlling as well. Didn't she want to have a discussion with the fertility specialist on which medicines you were using and she wanted to know every little detail. Well, and it was interesting because at some point I basically decided that I wasn't gonna work with her and she ended up calling the reproductive endocrinologist and basically saying, you know, I'm really worried because you know she's not getting back to us and you know we just don't wanna see her do nothing. And so this doctor got put in the middle by that doctor and it just became a very toxic um, way of communicating instead of just kind of directly dealing with it and moving on. So um, I told their institution before this call even was made to the reproductive endocrinologist that I would not continue working with them. And so then we consulted oncologist number three, who will call the honest one. And the reason we call him that is because he was the first doctor to openly say, we have no idea what medicine really works for any situation. And that's why we give everybody chemo, we give everybody radiation, we give everybody hormone therapy, we throw the kitchen sink at you. We see, hopefully, one of them stick, but we never know which one. And that's why we try it all. Ultimately, we can't say anything because no one knows enough about any of this. So we just go by data and statistics, which I thought was the first honest thing somebody said. It was honest and he was also, I couldn't be on the video call with him initially because I was tied up somewhere else. I mean, this is a time when we were talking with doctors all the time and 
I remember that he was willing to completely discuss my situation with you without any reservation. And that also was very refreshing because the control freak did not want to do that. She was unwilling to talk to anybody but me. And I sensed that it was also because she was very manipulative. I mean, ultimately, when a doctor has a patient alone, they can say certain things in certain ways. And this doctor, the honest doctor, was uh, perfectly fine talking with you and going through my whole scenario. Yeah, he actually listened. The interesting thing is that a local primary care doctor who knew him made a suggestion prior to my video call. She said, just let him do all the talking from the beginning and listen to all of his recommendations, but let him guide the talking. And it seems strange because she framed him as someone who almost came across, at least in her definition, as eccentric. Uh, which was odd because when you spoke to him and then when I spoke to him, I never got that sense about him. The sense that I got about him was that he was a good listener. He looked at the whole context of a situation. He was the he was the second doctor to acknowledge the role of Clomid as if not a secondary cause. He said it could have been the star of the show. And the control freak was unwilling to even acknowledge Clomid as playing a role in what happened to me. Right. And so... The honest oncologist got onto the video call and I didn't let him talk in the beginning. I said, if you don't mind, I'd like to provide a quick background summary before we begin. And so I told him everything that started with beginning with the fertility issues, going through the Clomid, and he listened. And after I finished, and I took about a minute and a half, he asked me what field of medicine I practice. And I said, oh, I'm not a doctor. He said, my interns can't even summarize all the details and the medical lingo the way that you know. And I said, oh, well, we've been through this now a few times. And he said, well, that's fantastic. And he said, I agree. He said, I think Clomid was the real cause. He said, your sister just cannot ever take Clomid again. Tell her to stay away from it. It's almost like an allergic reaction. He said he ultimately would probably have recommended the same course of action, that is to say chemo for a few months and then surgery and then radiation. But he said, I understand people who don't want to do chemo. And quite frankly, we have enough alternatives now where not everybody has to. And then he started looking through the pathology report and he said, for example, clinical factors show that chemo would benefit because the mass was so big and because seven nodes were compromised and because she's only 36 years old. But then at the same time, you look at the hormonally sensitive response, it's very, very high. And you look at the KI-67 score, which is low. And there are many other factors in here which suggest that we actually may not consider chemo at all. He said there was no atypical hyperplasia. So then he asked what you wanted to do. And I said she would really like to look at getting pregnant again. He said, okay, we can consider that in three years. And I said, well, in three years, she's going to be close to 40. I think she was hoping to do it sooner, maybe a year. He said, okay, well, let's see what happens. And uh, he suggested we meet again in about three weeks to figure out next steps. But he wasn't alarmist. There was no urgency. No. In fact, his approach uh, was very refreshing because he was very, he was data driven like uh, the statistician, but not in a way that was very rigid. 
Um, so he took some time to kind of process everything that had happened to me. And the next time that I spoke with him, he said, okay, so I understand about getting pregnant and you know, I'm open to it, but I think we should consider what the pathology report said, which was that there was DCIS left behind. Now he said, DCIS is not cancer. It's precancerous, and there's no guarantee that it would even become cancerous. But let's just get some imaging done. Let's you know monitor blood work, which I also suggested. So every month we tracked my ovulation patterns throughout the summer of 2020. Every month I ovulated normally, no high estrogen numbers, no high progesterone numbers. And then he said, let's just go to a very trusted radiologist that I like locally, and then let's see what she can find in the breast. So I got, you know, post-surgery mammograms done, ultrasounds done. This radiologist is very thorough. Um, we all go to her now. And uh, she was really incredible. She said, you know what? I don't see DCIS, but there are a couple of spots that I see on the left side. One is in the upper quadrant. It's a black blob, not really big, just kind of hanging out. And then there are a couple of little spots um, in the lower quadrant that she said were probably post-surgical things that were just kind of developing, but nothing that was a growth or a mass that you know caused concern. Now, what are these little spots that form after surgery typically? I mean, imagine that you've been in some kind of traumatic accident or some kind of um, impact injury. It's that kind of spot that uh, was there in the lower quadrant. It was something that the body was kind of trying to self-repair. Okay, and so this all happens in June, about a month after the lumpectomy surgery. Yeah, and so in June, the, nobody saw DCIS, even though the PATH report said that there was. So we assumed that if it was there, it was microscopic. Um, and then in the meantime, I switched back to OB1 um, because I felt that at this stage, given my situation, she would be a very good doctor to work with. And so we started running other blood work, you know, things like vitamin D and you know, seeing where I was. And I was very low. In mid-June, I tested vitamin D at 34. Now, vitamin D, why is this even something to test? Well, that can be like eight episodes alone, but vitamin D is definitely related to hormone regulation. I mean, in simplistic terms, it is like the mother load of all hormone regulators. And so, in fact, isn't vitamin D a hormone? It's not even a vitamin. Yeah, it's not even a vitamin. It's a hormone that regulates other hormones, basically, right? And we can get into that more and more. But basically, there is some consensus now in the field. Um, and I'm, when I say the field, I mean different branches of medicine that vitamin D plays some role in malignancies, especially in breast malignancies. I think it's been widely known that breast cancer has been pretty well researched compared to other situations. But I think what we're finding is that vitamin D plays an integral role in the homeostasis of the body. And so she tested your vitamin D, found that it was 34. Where does that fall on the spectrum of vitamin D levels? Actually, funnily enough, her office told me that they thought that was a very good number. And I said, I'm not so sure that's a good number. I think that's pretty low. So then I talked to the honest doctor, the honest oncologist, and he said, yeah, that's, that's low. He said, let's get it up to you know, 50, 60. So I said, well, I'd like to take a booster in the summer. Um, I'll supplement with the drops or the capsules also independently, but I'd like to take the 50,000 I use for four weeks. And so he agreed. So he prescribed it and we started getting it up. Um, and then in the meantime, he said, let's just track blood work every month like we're doing with the hormones and then go back for another ultrasound in August. 
So six weeks after the first one post-surgery. Okay, and this, would, this next ultrasound image would be to see if the DCIS shows up at all. Yeah, and also just to make sure there's nothing else going on. Okay, so in the meantime, we're hanging out in the summer, and we start talking to natural doctors as well. Since my friend had suggested we seek natural therapies and alternative therapies and functional medicine practitioners. So we see naturopath number one, who is in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And what does she recommend? Yeah, so she said that Clomid definitely played a role in this, if not the primary cause. So that stuff started to link up, which was encouraging to hear. She suggested um, you know, taking a lot of supplements like quercetin and um, calcium deglucrate. Calcium deglucrate, she said, was a way of basically doing like a natural hormone therapy where you minimize estrogen by helping the liver kind of detoxify and metabolize it, but you're not getting the horrible side effects of a tamoxifen or an ovarian suppression where you get hot flashes and bone pain and all the things that you get in menopause. Okay. And then what did she suggest in terms of nutrition? Eat a lot of berries, uh, eat a lot of pears, green pears, green apples. Um, she suggested a lot of cruciferous vegetables. She said red pepper was very nutritious, very healthy. Um, loaded with antioxidants. Uh, she suggested having green tea multiple times a day. Um, and she, and then when we met her, she just, it was like packets of information that she verbally shared with us. I mean, most of it was just her talking. Right, and then she suggested eating oats every day too. She did, though I didn't end up doing that, but yes, she did. Okay, and so she's trying to steer you in this direction of eating healthy, wholesome grains and then healthy wholesome fruits and vegetables she did say to limit fruit consumption to two fruits a day mm -hmm. i remember yeah. but she's but she did encourage the fruit eating she did and obviously she said to give up dairy which uh the honest uh, oncologist ob number one also supported um so there was consensus there so i did i mean if i had a latte which is my favorite drink to have every day it was maybe once or twice a week with organic grass-fed milk otherwise i wasn't having it anymore okay so the dairy's gone and then you implement some of these food recommendations from naturopath number one in the meantime we have a discussion with naturopath number two and her biggest recommendation is to make sure that the vitamin d level is between 70 to 100. now 100 seems really high at first that's because that's what we're used to hearing. But um, she gave us the anecdote of one of her patients who had gone through breast cancer in one breast, um, she did chemo surgery, and you know for two years she was okay, and then it came back in the other breast. And so this time, you know, she thought, why is it coming back? What's going on? And at this time of her rediagnosis, her vitamin D level, I believe, was at 19. It was very, very low. And so uh, this doctor worked with her to get her D levels up. And over the course of, I want to say it was a year and a half to two years, her D level came back to over 90. So she didn't do a surgery or any treatment, but she upped her vitamin D level. And then when she went back to get imaged, they said there's nothing to biopsy, but you don't see anything anymore. So this woman had recurrent cancer, decides to not do any kind of conventional treatment the second time around, ups her vitamin D level, and over the course of a year and a half, maybe close to two years, when they image her, they say, well, where are we gonna do the surgery? We can't even do a biopsy because we can't see anything anymore. 
So the vitamin D level changing may have actually just taken the cancer away. That's the assumption. That's the assumption, yeah. So the naturopath number one didn't seem to think that a high D level was that important. You know, I don't remember her saying anything over, you know, 70, 80, that's where you should be. I remember her saying between 50 and 60. Honest doctor also said between 50 and 60. OB number one said 60 is sufficient. But this naturopath number two is a firm believer of getting the levels up close to 100. Correct. Okay, and so that's an interesting story. So then we start tracking your vitamin D levels. Now after you take the booster, what's your vitamin D level? We didn't get it checked until November. Okay. In November it was 88. 88, okay, so we'll have to come back to that in a second. Meanwhile, in August, you go back for another ultrasound imaging. Right, so there were two spots that she had seen in June, the radiologist, um, and then one spot had cleared, so that was fine. It was probably post-surgical trauma, but there was another spot that she had seen in the upper quadrant originally that had gotten a little bit bigger, and she said, you know, you're about to do a pregnancy at some point. I just, I would not want to like send you on your way until we just investigate this and make sure that it's fine. So um, she felt that doing a biopsy on it was warranted. Honest oncologist uh, in his office agreed. Um, the OB agreed. So basically all of my team was on board with doing a biopsy. But again, the spot that they saw did not look like the spot from the spring. It didn't have calcifications. It didn't have irregular borders. It was just a black blob and it looked like scar tissue, honestly. And that's what they all thought it was. So nobody really seemed concerned. Um, So it took insurance a while to approve this biopsy and cover it because ultimately they didn't see any emergency here either. Okay, so... It's hard to get anybody to approve for a biopsy. Eventually, though, the insurance company approves the biopsy. You go to get the biopsy. And then what do they say? The biopsy happened at the end of September 2020, September 23rd. I remember that date. So I went um, to the place that did the same original biopsy, which is a horrible place to go back to, bad luck. And it sure enough came back as ductal carcinoma. And I was shocked. I was in a state of shock for a few days because I just couldn't believe that this had been left behind. But then we started piecing everything back that the surgeon had told us in May. And it made sense because what she did and ROB confirmed this was that when she would have done the lumpectomy in order to reshape the breast, she would have moved tissue from bottom to top. And it in fact, she told us that she yeah. moved tissue. Yeah, so what she ended up doing was not taking out enough of a margin in the bottom and then moved what was left over in some aspect to the top. And so originally, I had no malignancy in the top of the breast, but now because of what she moved, there it was. And so the OB number one's opinion is that this was just residual. And the radiologist who did the biopsy told her the same thing. So now two doctors think it's residual. Honest oncologist agreed. When he and I spoke on the phone um, about this, he said, yes, this is residual. It was left behind. There's no other, the receptors are the same. It's estrogen positive, progesterone positive, not doing anything different. Doesn't look like a new growth because it didn't have the physical appearance of a new growth. It's just something that was left behind in tissue that we have to take out. And so all three of them agreed do a mastectomy. And the reason that they agreed on this is because you've already lost ducts and tissue from the original surgery. To do another lumpectomy, you would not like the way that you look at the end of it. You might as well just go straight to implant. 
Okay, so were you on board with moving forward with a mastectomy? Did I have a choice? I mean, I could let it sit there and I could I could do the waiting game and just see if I could naturally starve it out or I could, you know, get done with it sooner and then say, okay, then let me also do the natural stuff alongside. So I said, let's do both. Okay, and so now we have the big task ahead of us. Who will do the mastectomy? And that is coming up in the next episode.